Uh, we're about to go to the Lord in prayer in just a moment. I want to remind you of something quickly. We've said, the, we've said this often, I guess, in the past, that you live in a culture of uh, entertainment and something like this, which is for God's glory and the edification of saints, can so quickly turn into just entertainment. Uh, I know that's harder when, when you got somebody standing in front of you like me that's not very entertaining. But still, it can become a very entertainment type thing. And I want to remind you, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, it says God gave gifts to His church. And, and one of them it says in Ephesians 4, 11, it says pastors and teachers for the equipping, listen to the reason, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Is that what you're aimed at this morning? The equipping of the saints. The equipping of the saints. Or over there in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul was speaking about... Uh, uh, Preaching the word, and he said, The Lord stood with me that the, that the message might be preached fully through me, and all the Gentiles might hear. So it spoke about the Lord standing with him, so it affected his preaching and affected their hearing. And so, do you believe that? Do you, do you see it that way this morning that God stands with me as I put my trust in him, not in my own flesh, but I put my trust in him that we would exalt him as we see his glory and his word? Do you believe that? The Lord stands with us to affect my preaching and you're here in this morning. Let's go to God in prayer and ask Him to do it. God, thank You that we can open up Your Word. Thank You for, for being uh, just this example that You stood with a man. As He proclaimed Your Word and Your greatness, You stood with a man. You strengthened him. And you affected the hearers. And I just pray, God, that you would do that this morning. That you would stand with me as I proclaim your word, God. I've got no reason to think that you would not. But every reason, because of your great mercy and grace and your promises, God, that you'd be with us always, even to the ends of the age. I've got every reason to think that you would answer this prayer. And that you would stand with me this morning. And you would, you would use me, God, to preach Your Word. God, I've got every reason to believe that You would be with the here, so please be with them this morning. God, I pray that as Your Word is read, as we examine it, as we glory in it, God, that You would be worshipped and praised during this time. Be worshipped in the hearts of Your church. God, I pray that equipping would happen this morning. That your church would be equipped for work, for the work of the ministry. Thank you, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're at Mark chapter 14. And as most of you know, we're going verse by verse, phrase by phrase through the gospel of Mark. And we land in verse 27. And we're going we're gonna to get verse 27 to verse 42 this morning. And so we're going to start off by reading this whole passage. Verse 27 to 42. Alright, so I want you to zone in with me. I'm going to read it slow. I'm going to try to read it clear. And I want you to get as much out of it as you can just through reading it right now. Verse 27, listen. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if, it, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from Him. And He said, Abba Father, all things are possible for You. Take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will. Then He came and found them sleeping. And He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. That's God's Word. That's some heavy stuff, right? Just to kind of give a setting and a timeline to kind of put you in a place in time here. I want you to think about this. The disciples and Jesus, they've just been in Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem. And they've, they've celebrated the last Passover. And He initiated the Lord's Supper so that so what their minds are on His blood that's about to be shed. He just told them that. Their minds are on His flesh that's about to be broken in this new covenant that's about to be opened up. He just told them that. And now they're heading out of Jerusalem. And Jesus is walking with His disciples to the Mount of Olives. This is about a Sabbath day's journey according to the book of Acts. This is about a half mile away. And you can see this in chapter 14, verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So here they are, the Lord's Supper, His blood, His broken body on their mind, and they sing a hymn and they head out to the Mount of Olives about a Sabbath day's journey. On the walk with His disciples, His disciples are already saddened. We know that. They're already a little sorrowful. We know that from John 16. We know that from the other parallel account in Luke that they slept for sorrow. Or in John 16, Jesus said, because I say these things, sorrow has filled your heart. So as they're walking this half mile journey from Jerusalem out to the Mount of Olives, there's sorrow in the disciples' hearts. Now, in the midst, you imagine this, they're walking out sorrows in their hearts, and then Jesus gives them this shocking reality. All of a sudden, He says, all of you will be made to stumble even this night. All of you will be made to stumble even this night. And you can see them. And we get, we get 
insight into this dialogue. As they walk from Jerusalem out to the Mount of Olives, we get insight into this dialogue in chapter 14, verse 27 through 31. That's the walk from Jerusalem out to the Mount of Olives. Now, they arrive at their destination, the Mount of Olives, and then they go to a very specific place on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane. And they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and and when He gets there, we're going to see the agony of Jesus. The agony of Jesus as He goes to the Father in prayer. And we can see that. That's recorded for us in verses 32 through 42. Verse 32 through 42. And here at the Garden of Gethsemane is where Judas is going to show up with that multitude behind him. And Jesus is going to go out to meet him. And he's going to be arrested and eventually crucified. This is where we are in our timeline. Now there's two, just kind of get your mind right here. There's two major sections. I know I have four sections on your sheet, on your study guide. But there's really two major sections you could break this up to. I just said them, okay? Verse 27, verses 27 to 31 is on the way to Gethsemane. And verses 32 to 42 is in Gethsemane. In that first section, in Gethsemane, we're going to see Him telling His disciples that they're all going to fall away and how they respond. And then when they get in Gethsemane, that second section, in Gethsemane, we're going to see the agony of Jesus as He goes to the Father in prayer. Now these two sections are very connected in many different ways. Okay, Let me give you a few of the ways that they're connected. On the way to Gethsemane, Jesus tells them, you're all going to fall away. And then in Gethsemane, we see the initial signs of them falling away as they all fall asleep. Which, by the way, sleepy Christianity is always an initial sign of denying Christ. How is it connected? On the way to Gethsemane, Jesus says that he he pretty much says, I'm going to experience the cross all along. Because you guys are going to abandon me, I'm going to experience the cross all alone. And when we get into Gethsemane, we see him virtually all alone as all the disciples go to sleep. On the way to Gethsemane, we see the pride of the disciples, the pride that they have. We'll never deny you. And you see the humility of Christ as he bows down. He hits his face and he knows he's about to humble himself even to the point of death. On the way to Gethsemane, we see the absolute seriousness. And this is the main thing I want you to see, the main connection. On the way to Gethsemane, verses 27 to 31, we're going to see the absolute seriousness, intensity of man's sin, of our sin, sinfulness before God. And then in that second section in Gethsemane, we're going to see the great seriousness of the wrath of God on sin. And these are connected. So... Let's start in that first section. Verse 27 through 31. We got the sheep will be scattered when the shepherd is struck. Verse 27. Let me read the first part of verse 27 again. Then Jesus said to them. They're on that walk. And Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. All of you will be made to fall away. All of you will be made to to stumble. He lets them know. He lets the disciples know that every one of you are going to fall away when I'm killed. When I'm struck, you're all going to fall away. Now, Jesus has already stirred up their, their hearts to examine themselves in the previous section, right? He said, one of you is going to betray me. And in self-examination mode, they begin to say, is it I, Lord? 
Is it ah? Is it ah? Is it ah? And now we're going to see he cuts right to the chase and he says, all of you are going to be made to stumble this night. All of you will be made to stumble. He proves it from Scripture. You see this in the second part of verse 27. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. He quotes this verse from the Old Testament and says, this is how I know this. This is how I know this. The Scripture says that the shepherd's going to be struck and all the sheep will be scattered. We see in verse, get down to verse 29, Peter's in denial. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Here's pride. Do you hear the pride in his voice? Even though all are made to stumble, even if all the rest of them stumble, yet I will not stumble. In verse 29, he did not respond. Peter did not respond like that hymn writer of old. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for that courts above. And he didn't respond like that. He didn't respond like the guy in Mark 9 who had the demon-possessed child. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. He didn't respond like that. He responded with self-confidence and pride. He did not realize the potential in himself to do such a heinous crime. He doesn't realize this potential in himself to sin so horribly. Then in verse 30, Jesus gives him a specific prophecy. Jesus gives him a specific prophecy. Now He doesn't just say you're all going to be made to fall away, but specifically Peter. Let me tell you something right here in verse 30. Surely I say to you, that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Before that rooster crows twice. He's saying, before the night is even finished, you are going to deny me three times. You say you're going to die for me. You say, that you say this, but you're going to deny me three times. And this will be fulfilled. This does happen. And then we see in verse 31, all the disciples follow up and in line with Peter. Peter speaks up more, more uh, with more passion. He speaks up and says in verse 31, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then listen, all of them did it. All the disciples said likewise. So here they are. I want you to hear their pride. Now just a short time ago, as we know from last week with Dustin teaching, just a short time ago, Jesus stirred up their self-examination and their response was, is it our Lord? One of, you said one of us is going to betray you. Is it I? Am I going to be the one to betray you? Is it our Lord? And they all said it. Is it our Lord? What took them from this, what seemed like humility? Is it me, God? Am I the one that will deny you? And now we see them in pride. Not in humility, but in pride. I will never deny you. What took them from here to there? And I think it's easy. I think it's just time. Just a little bit of time. Given just a little bit of time, our flesh will always default to pride and arrogance and never humility. And just a little bit of time goes by, and here they are, full of self-confidence. Now, why does Jesus tell them? Okay, they're leaving Jerusalem, headed out to the Mount of Olives. Why does Jesus even tell them this? Why not just let the events unfold? Why does Jesus let them in on this piece of information that they're all going to fall? Why does He tell them that? And I'll tell you two reasons. One, to teach them about their own great sinfulness because they obviously do not see the potential in themselves to sin to this degree. So one is to teach them about their own great sinfulness. 
Two, two is to comfort them. And you see the mercy of Jesus is to comfort them and it's to show them mercy. And you say, why do you say that? Look at verse 28. Just after he tells them that they're all going to fall away, look what he says in verse 28. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I will be struck and I will die, but I'm going to be raised and I'm going to gather you back together. You're all going to fall away, but I'm going to meet you in Galilee and I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back together. This is even meant to be a comfort to them. Now, in this section, what is the major takeaway for us? As we read this, okay, we get to read this, we get insight into this walk from from Jerusalem out to the Garden of Gethsemane. We get a peek into their conversations. And what are we supposed to take away? And here's what I want us to take away. The great sinfulness of man. I want you to feel it in your bones. The great sinfulness of man. They are about to abandon Jesus. The Son of God. They're going to abandon Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior in His greatest hour of need. They cowardly deny Him. They turn their back on the one who loved them so much. There's not much worse than this. And this is coming from those who are closest to Him in this life and on this earth. His disciples. This came that that His disciples, His twelve, His eleven, not even Jews, His eleven, would deny Him and 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 would walk away from Him and abandon Him in His greatest hour of need. And they do this, the great sinfulness of man. And if this happened with the eleven, the closest to Him on this earth, what does that say about all of us? The great sinfulness of man. What if I said this about you? You are a coward by nature. Left to yourself, the natural tendencies of your flesh, you will deny Jesus. You'll be the voice saying, crucify Him. What if I said that about you? Would you believe me? Would you believe this about yourself? Without the grace of God, without God's power to restrain sin in your life, you would be the one not only yelling crucify Him, but you would gladly, happily drive the nail through His hands and through His feet. The great sinfulness of man. I want you to see it. If God did not restrain you from the most... Just think about it with me. If He didn't restrain you from the most wretched expressions of sin on this earth, you too would happily participate in them. Do you feel this about yourself? you would be a murderer of the innocent. You would be ISIS who decapitates the heads of Christians, the innocent. You would be the abortionist mutilating thousands of babies every month. That would be you. You would be the sex trafficker kidnapping young girls. You would be the thief of the worst kind, stealing from the most vulnerable people. This would be you. What if I said this about you? Left to yourself, you would partake in the worst expressions of sexual morality and violence that there is. You would be the rapist. You would be the one prone to molestation. You would be the homosexual. You would be these things. Left to yourself. Left to yourself, you would never have faith in God. Left to yourself, you would never delight in His excellencies. Left to yourself, you would never love Him. You would never repent from your sins. The great sinfulness of man. Do you see it? I want you to feel it in your bones. Left to yourself, you would deny Jesus like Peter three times, even before the rooster crows. Do you believe this about yourself?
What if I made you give me an answer right now? Would you respond like Peter and the disciples? No, no, I'll never deny you. Will you respond that way? I would never, I would never ever deny. I would never do those things. Is that how you would respond if I got you to respond right now? You might say, well, I don't feel like I would ever do those things. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Hebrews 3.13, it talks about the deceitfulness of sin. A hardened heart that comes to the deceitfulness of sin. And this is what happens. Our hearts are hardened. And we, we have this natural tendency to sin. And if God doesn't restrain, we walk into all kinds of wickedness. And you say, well, I don't feel that. And what happens is the sin hardens your heart. And you don't feel the conviction of it, but just pride and arrogance and self-confidence. Peter said, even if all are made to stumble, yet I won't, I won't be made to stumble. All the disciples said, if I have to die with you, I would not deny you. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, we're told, let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Many people, many people call the lesson learned here the total depravity of man. The total depravity of man. It's true. Man is absolutely depraved and evil by nature. And I want this to be more than a doctrine on a piece of paper to you. I want you to feel this in your bones that we are totally depraved. Robert Murray McShane, this is what he said about himself. The seed, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Paul the, Paul the Apostle. He said, I know that, it, that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. The depravity of man. So what are the implications? As we think about this, we have this example sitting before us. What are the implications of the total depravity of man? As you apply this to yourself, what are the implications? Number one, apart from Him, you can do nothing. Jesus said it in John 15, 5, apart from Him, you can do nothing. You can't do anything. This example in the Gospel of Mark is one of the most vivid illustrations of this. That, that your self-resolve is not enough. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Number two, we have no ability to save ourselves. Remember the disciples said, Jesus, how then can a man be saved? And Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. Total inability to save yourself. What are the implications? Number three, if this is our natural state, then eternal hell is not an unjust punishment for us. God did not go overboard when He decided eternity in the lake of fire forever and ever burning in hell. He did not go overboard. If this is true, the total depravity of man, then He didn't go overboard. This is a just punishment that we would go to hell forever and this is what we deserve. And number four, very similar to the third, because of our great sinfulness, if you see this about yourself and you feel it in your bones, because of our great sinfulness, there's something that we are supposed to drink. It's called a cup. It's a cup. There's a cup that we're supposed to drink. It's the cup of the fierce wrath of Almighty God. And we must drink it down. This is all over the Bible. Listen to these verses. Psalm 75 verse 7. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord, listen, there is a cup. 
There's a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely it's dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. There's a cup. A cup of the wrath of Almighty God. Psalm 11 verse 6. Upon the wicked, upon the wicked, He will rain coals, fire and brimstone and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. There's a cup to drink. Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, thus the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup, this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51 verse 17 calls it the cup of His wrath. Revelation 14.10 says, He will also drink, He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup, cup of His anger. And how do we describe that? He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Revelation 16, 19 calls the cup the fierceness of His wrath. There's a cup. And because of this total depravity, you see it in yourself. Here's these two. Here's the closest ones to Jesus on earth that turned away from Him, walked away from Him in His grace. They abandoned Him in His greatest time of need. And we see in that our great sinfulness. We don't say, we would never do that. We say that's exactly what we would do left to ourselves. And we deserve this cup. The cup of God's wrath. So, seeing our great sinfulness, seeing this, what's there, okay? You're applying it to yourself. It's not just doctrine on paper, but you feel it in your bones. Let's look now to our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, verses 32 through 36. The Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this passage is awesome, amazing. This passage. I just want to give you some quotes, okay, from some other men that you might respect. I want to give you some quotes about Gethsemane, this passage of Scripture, verses 32-36. Charles Spurgeon, he's speaking about the, the wonders of Gethsemane, and he says this, it's far beyond the preacher's capacity to set it forth to you. And I lost all hope. He goes on to say, Jesus Himself must give you access to the wonders of Gethsemane. As for me, I can but invite you to enter the garden, bidding you to put your shoes from off your feet for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. Gethsemane. Another preacher said, the most critical passage in the gospel narrative to get right is Gethsemane. St. Clair Ferguson, he said, the garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. C.J. Mahaney, he said, you'll never understand Calvary, the cross, apart from Gethsemane. Leonard Ravenhill, speaking about those words that came off of Jesus' mouth in Gethsemane, he said, it's the most wonderful thing that human lips ever uttered. The prophet Isaiah, most importantly, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Gethsemane, said this about it. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Let's look at the arrival at Gethsemane. Verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, sit here while I pray. So He came to a place called Gethsemane. So what is this place? Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane actually means an oil press. 
an oil press. Okay, you think about the Mount of Olives. There's olives everywhere. They're in a garden. This the olive trees everywhere, and and you got olive oil you can press in this Gethsemane, this oil press. It's a very fitting theme as we think about God's wrath pressing down on King Jesus and getting closer and closer and closer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the wine press. It's a very familiar place. Gethsemane, this is not the first time they've been here. John 18 verse 2, it says, Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. Gethsemane is a very familiar place that they would go to. He left most of His disciples at the gate. Verse 32, we see right here, He says, sit here while I pray. So He tells them, sit down right here, and He's about to walk in to the garden of Gethsemane. If you look at verse 33, this first half, and He took Peter, James, and John with Him. So He tells most of His disciples to sit down. And then Jesus goes with Peter, James, and John deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane. And here they are, walking in. Walking into the Garden of Gethsemane. And He's going there to pray. He said, sit here while I pray. He's going into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Now, how did Jesus feel? How did He feel in the Garden of Gethsemane? What were the feelings that He had? And we see this in verse 33, the second half. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. So he's walking, he's walking with Peter, James, and John deeper into Gethsemane. And he, be, he begins to feel something. Troubled and deeply distressed is what he begins to feel. Troubled, this means anguish, depression. This is this, out of three words that translate over into depression. This is the strongest of the three. And he begins to feel deeply depressed during this time. Deeply anguished during this time. It says deeply distressed. And that word means alarmed, fearful. So think sorrow and fear and terror begins to come upon him as he's walking with Peter, James, and John into Gethsemane. Can you feel that? And at some point, He turns to them. And we see it in verse 34. As they're walking in, Jesus turns to Peter, James, and John. And He makes known what's going on on the inside. He lets them know what's happening. He says to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Exceedingly sorrowful, He says. He's walking into Gethsemane and He admits to them that He is exceedingly sorrowful. This means He is crushed with grief. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. He is deeply grieved, even to death. And this is speaking about a physical death. Jesus is saying that the experience that He's having right now is literally killing Him. It's killing Him. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. The parallel account of the same account here in Gethsemane, the parallel account in Luke says He was in agony. He was in agony. And he began to, his sweat became like great drops of blood. He's in such agony and distress. He even has an angel. An angel has to come to him, according to the count in Luke, and strengthen him in this moment. He's about to die. He's going to die before he even gets to the cross. This is killing him, what he's going through in Gethsemane. And I want you to see that. Now, what could have made Almighty Son of God who raises the dead, who heals lepers, who is from eternity past, what can make Almighty Son of God feel like this? And I want you to notice something. 
I want you to notice what was on his mind, okay? We know how he feels when he gets into Gethsemane, but we got a clue about what's on his mind when he's walking in. He's walking from Jerusalem. He's headed up to to Gethsemane. And we get a clue in verse 27 of what's on his mind and what's on his mind. I will strike the shepherd and the the sheep will be scattered. What's on his mind is the shepherd, that's him, is about to be struck. He's about to be struck and he knows it. And he's thinking about it on the way in and he feels the pain of it as he gets into Gethsemane. They're quoting from Zechariah. Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13, 7. Listen. This is God speaking. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. This is Yahweh saying, pick the sword up. Awake, my my sword. Awake, my sword, against my companion, against the shepherd. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. What's he thinking about on the way in? Yahweh, His Father, is about to bring down the sword of His wrath on Him and He knows it and He feels it in Gethsemane that it's coming. It's coming. Gethsemane is a lot like Abraham's hand lifted up with a sword in it ready to come down on His only begotten Son, His his one and only Son. And He's about to bring it down and Gethsemane is a lot like that. Remember that in Genesis 22? God says, Abraham, take your son, your only son. Think of the picture. Your father, Abraham, take your only son, Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to put a sword through him. And he takes him up and he lays him on the altar. And Abraham lifts up that sword. And you imagine the feelings of that young man in that moment. And he lifts it up and he's about to bring it down. And in that moment, an angel says, no, not now. Don't do it yet. Because this is a picture. In just a few hundreds of of years later, that hand's going to go up and Jesus is in the garden. He feels the hand raised. He feels the sword of the Lord, the sword of His wrath raised up, about to come down. And He says, is there any other way? Is there any other way to get out of this? And there's going to be no interruption this time. And at the cross, it's going to come barreling down on Christ. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our sins. And Isaiah 53.10 says it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. And Jesus feels the weight of this. Jesus knew that He would undergo the strike of justice from His Father. Listen to this old hymn. It's, It's stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Listen to this hymn. Tell me, you who hear Him groaning, was there ever grief like His? Friends, through fear, His cause disowning, foes insulting His distress. Many hands were raised to wound Him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced Him was the stroke that justice gave. Jesus entered into Gethsemane and He feels the weight of what is to come. It begins to set down like a massive weight on His shoulders. He will be betrayed and sold like a slave. By one of his twelve. All of his closest disciples are going to abandon him in his greatest time of need. The Jewish authorities are going to gloat over him. They're going to gloat over him in his weakness. The Gentiles like us are going to mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. But worst of all, and hear me out, 
worst of all, worst of all of that that I just said, worst of all, the Son of God, who has been one with the Father for all of eternity in perfect love, perfect unity, will become God forsaken, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he feels the, the stench of nastiness of sin come onto himself, and then God, his Father, is going to turn on him, and all the wrath that's due us is going to come barreling down on him instead of us. And he feels this. Raging megastorms. You remember that? Raging megastorms did not make Jesus nervous. In fact, he was asleep. Remember that? The physical destruction of his body does not scare him. It doesn't make him anxious. He's been talking about that the whole way through. Very calmly that he's going to die. What terrified the Son of God and caused Him to tremble in fear and anxiety is the wrath of God poured out. The wrath of God poured out. Now listen, the way Jesus responds, does this mean that Jesus didn't want to die for you? Does this mean that Jesus didn't want to die for us? And I say, let it never be so that you would think that. This is not the case. We know that He wanted to die for us. It's the reason that He came. He came to die. John chapter 12, listen to this. Now my soul is troubled. He's beginning to feel this trouble. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He knew He was going to die. Yes, He wants to die for you. So the reaction we see the reaction we see of Him retracting is the only proper response to the sinless, holy, the embodiment of purity and sin begins to encroach on Him because He's going to become sin for us. And the only proper response is to retract. Or the one that's been united in love with the Father for all of eternity and He begins to see that His wrath is going to be turned on Him instead. The only proper response is to retract a little. In that moment, Jesus said in verse 34, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Just the knowledge of the absorption, the absorption of the wrath of God for other sinners, just the knowledge of that began to kill him, even to death. It's like at Gethsemane, Jesus is feeling the heat waves coming off the sun of the fiery wrath of God. And he's feeling the heat waves here. So what was caused? So think, think with me. What was causing Jesus to feel this way? Troubled. Deeply distressed as we just read. And I want you to look with me at the content of Jesus' prayer. Okay, we've, we've seen how Jesus felt. Now let's look at what He said. Look at the content of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Verse 35 and 36. He went a little farther and fell on the ground. So Jesus, he got, he, He's taking Peter, James, and John out a little further, deeper into Gethsemane. He tells them to watch and pray. And He goes out a little bit farther. It says in, the, in another account about a stone's throw. He's about a stone's throw away from them. He falls down, it says. You see it there in verse 35. And fell on the ground. Nobody pushed Him. He's fallen down on the, under the weight of the wrath of God. He's fallen down. And it says right here in verse 35, and he prayed, listen to what he said, that if it were possible, the hour might pass for him. Oh, that this hour would pass from me. 
Verse 36, he said, Abba, Father. Hear the intimacy. He knows it for all of eternity. He's been Abba, Father. For all of eternity, this is the way it's been. He says, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. He pulls out the omnipotence and sovereignty of God. Everything is possible for you, Abba, Father. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. What was it that troubled Jesus' soul? It was that hour that was coming. He said that this hour might pass. There's an hour coming. There's a time coming that tormented his soul. An hour was coming that he would become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And He knew that that was coming. Oh, the horror He must have felt as He knew that He would stand in the place of sinners and that His Father would look upon Him, the Holy One, as wretched and unclean. At the hour of Jesus' baptism, Mark chapter 1, the hour of Jesus' baptism, Jesus looks to the Father. He looks to the Father and He, he hears what? Here's, you are my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. At, the, at Mark chapter 9, the hour of his, his transfiguration. So you got the beginning of his ministry, right? The peak of his ministry at the transfiguration. He looks to the Father and what does he hear? He looks to the Father and he hears, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And now the hour is approaching for which he came to the earth. The hour's coming up. The reason He came to the earth. And Jesus knows that He's going to look to His Father and He's going to lock eyes with one that is full of fury and hatred towards sin and He will be the sin bearer. And so He's distressed. The cup, it says in verse 36. Remember the cup? He says, God... Father, let this cup pass from me. Remember the cup that we all said? I hope we all agree that we rightly deserve the cup of eternal wrath of God, the fierceness of His anger, the fierceness of His wrath. And Jesus sees it coming and He says, let this cup pass from me. I want you to make sure you know this. The cup is not just the physical things that happen at the cross. A bloody sacrifice had to happen. Okay? But it's not just the torture that you think of physically. That was not just the cup. There are many, many uh, followers of Christ that have come afterwards that, that underwent similar persecution. And they too were hung on a cross. And they went to the cross joyfully and singing hymns to God. Are we to think that they were more courageous than Jesus? And the answer is no. There was something else. There was something else. The cup of the wrath of God is what Jesus drank down. The cup of the wrath of God. There's something you couldn't see in those physical torture moments at the cross. And it was the wrath of God being poured out. Think about it. Eternal punishments. Millions of people who are saved and they're His. Millions of eternal punishments in that cup that He drank down. God's just wrath, fury, hatred, punishment for sin in the cup that is ours. And Jesus drank it down down, down, till it was all gone. No wrath left for us to drink. <laughs> God the Father took our cup, our cup, and He placed it before Jesus at Gethsemane. He put it before Him at Gethsemane. Jesus looked into the cup and He saw the horror 
in the terror of the punishment for our sin. He cried out, is there any other way? Must I drink this cup? Do I have to drink this cup? And the father, the father's silence said, yes, yes. And he set his face like flint and he drank our cup down until there was no, there was no wrath left for us to drink. He drank your hell. He drank your hell. Now what do we learn from the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane? What do we learn here? And very quickly, I want to tell you this. We've already seen, we've already seen the seriousness of our sin. We've already seen it, the depravity, total depravity of man. Even His greatest disciples turn away from Him. We've already seen the great seriousness of our sin. And now we see in Gethsemane the great severity and seriousness of God's wrath towards sin. We see it that even the Almighty Son of God would tremble and retract. The, the visible... And I'm, I'm convinced that the reason Mark records this, the reason why the Gospel writers record Gethsemane for us, I'm convinced that, the, that one of the major reasons that this is recorded for us is because when we see the visible details of the cross, Gethsemane helps us get in behind the scenes and see what was really happening there. Even beyond, if you were there that day and you saw Him hanging bloody on the cross, even beyond what you could see, the invisible details of God's fury being poured out in Gethsemane is put up to help us to see that. This is what we learn from Gethsemane. Verse 37, next section, verse 37 through 41, we're going to see the sleepiness, the sleepiness of the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. The sleepiness of the disciples. First things that happens, look at verse 37. Then He came. So Jesus comes back from this time of prayer, which by the way, should touch your heart, that He's undergoing fear and anxiety of the wrath of God that's coming. And He comes back to check on His disciples that He knows is going to abandon them. What mercy. What love coming out of Jesus. And He comes back. And it says in verse 37, Then He came and found them sleeping. He found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, Simon, he called him his old name. This is what he always did when Simon was acting like his old self. Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Peter gets singled out. Now why does Peter get singled out? He was the leader. Remember, he was the leader of the one saying, we'll never deny you in pride and arrogance. And now he gets singled out when he's asleep in the garden. He's asleep at Jesus' greatest time of need. And then he gives a lesson on temptation. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Hear the lesson that he teaches them in this moment. Jesus remembers. Jesus remembers that on the way to Gethsemane, they had said, we'll never deny you. We'll never deny you. We will, not, we will go to death for you before we will deny you. So he knows that their spirits are willing. But he also knows that their flesh is weak. And this tells us that good intentions are not enough. Good intentions are not enough. Wake up. Be on alert. Pray. You must watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Your good intentions are not enough. You must watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The writer of Psalm 119 had good intentions. The writer of Psalm 119, he had good intentions to not sin against God, but he did not lean on just his good intentions. His spirit was willing not to sin against God, and yet he did not lean on that. How do I know that? 
Because when you read Psalm 119 verse 10, it says this, Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Doesn't that sound different than Peter? Oh, let me not wander from your... He goes to God in prayer. The means of grace. He, he grabs hold of the means of grace to keep it from temptation in that moment. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Next phrase. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Taking the word of God and going to war against temptation. And we learn this lesson from Jesus even in this moment. That we take the means of grace, prayer to God and the word of God, and we come against temptation. Your good intentions are not enough. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And we see in verse 39 through 41, look at, look at it with me. They're going to get caught sleeping three times. They're going to get caught sleeping three times. Let's read it. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. So here they are. He goes to pray again. Same agony. He comes back and he finds them asleep. 41, then he came the third time, which assumes that he's going out to pray again and he comes back a third time. And he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. I want you to think about it. Think about the magnitude of the events going on around these disciples right now where we're reading. Think of the magnitude of these events and they're sleeping. They're sleeping. The magnitude of the events and yet they're unaffected. Just think about the magnitude of these events. God the Father is looking on God the Son in His human nature and for the first time in all of eternity He will forsake Him. God the Father is looking on the one that He loves. The one that He he loves. In a few short hours, He will pour out millions of eternities of wrath on Him. Think of the magnitude of what's going on in Gethsemane. All the angels are looking on in utter horror and amazement. One of them is even sent to His aid. All the spiritual realm, the, the spiritual host of wickedness, surely they're looking on. Satan's tempting. The unclean spirits are looking on in this moment. Think of the massive weight of what is happening, the magnitude of these events. The Son of God is experiencing the greatest agony to ever hit human flesh. He begins to feel the release of the Father's favor and protection, and He begins to feel the weight of sin. And death coming down on him. And all this, all this is going to happen is going to allow sinners like Peter, James, John, and every one of us to be forgiven of our sins forever. Think of the magnitude of these events. And they're asleep. They're asleep. Disciples of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, wake up. How are you sleeping in a moment like this, Peter? How could you sleep? James and John, how could you sleep at a moment like this? They could not see the magnitude of what was going on around them. And so they're asleep. They're asleep in this moment. Is it? I think it's interesting that when the storm was raging on the Sea of Galilee, they weren't asleep then. Roles reversed. Jesus is asleep. And they're wide awake at the, the, the storm that's right in front of their eyes. They can see that. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that just like us? It's just like us to be worried and anxious about the, the lesser storms and ignore the greater realities that are going, unfolding and going on all around us. So, 
Don't be too hard on the sleeping disciples. Don't be too hard on the sleeping disciples unless you first look at yourself. You need to look at yourself first. Think about it. Consider the magnitude of the things going on around you right now as I speak. Think of the magnitudes of the things that are going on. God Almighty is performing His sovereign will and His eternal purpose in all the earth right now as we speak. And it will soon come to a close. Satan will be destroyed in the lake of fire. Sin and death will be no more. And we will be saved to dwell with God forever. This is This is massive. Christ Jesus the Lord right now as we speak is seated, fully God, fully man at the right hand of the throne of God and He's waiting to return with all His holy angels with power and glory. Think of the magnitude. The Holy Spirit is at work in the earth. He's ripping souls out of eternal damnation and ushering them into eternal life. Satan and all his spiritual hosts of wickedness are active. Right now as we speak, they're active and they're evil. They're hopelessly straining to thwart the plan of God, turn people into hell, and make the Christians stumble. Right now, as we speak, you are at war. Not a war of flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. War against your own sin. War over the glory of God and over the souls of men. The Spirit of God dwells in you, Christian. Now you can see Jesus and all His glory in the Word. The Spirit of God dwells in you, Christian. Now you can access Him and go to the throne of grace and you can pray to Him and you can worship Him. The Spirit of God dwells in you, Christian. You've got power from on high to be a witness and spread His kingdom even to the ends of the earth. Are you asleep? And are you asleep? In the magnitude of moments like this, right now, could you be sleeping as a Christian? Hear the words of Paul, the apostle to the Romans. It is high time to awake out of your sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Hear the words of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians. Awake you who sleep. Arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. Hear the words of Jesus to those sleeping Disciples in Gethsemane. Mark 14.34 Stay here and watch. Be alert. Mark 14.38 He's coming back from that prayer. He says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Lest you enter into temptation. Do you need to hear this today? Do you need to hear this? Are you a spiritual sleeper? Are you awake? Is your Christianity a, a sleepy Christianity? Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Watch and pray. Don't be caught sleeping. There's too much at stake and your flesh is so weak. Last verse. Verse 42. Last section. Jesus goes to His betrayer. I want you to see this. Rise, He says to His disciples. Rise. Get up, He says. Let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Now, if you put those words in any other context, it would mean retreat. Get up. The betrayer's at hand and we got to get out of here. And in this case, it's not. He says, rise, my betrayer's at hand. And this is not retreat. This is advance. He's going headlong right into his suffering. I want you to see in this the obedience of Jesus. 
The obedience of Jesus. I'll tell you why I call it the obedience of Jesus. Let me read a verse to you. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Listen, listen to this. In the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death and was heard because of His godly fear, though He was a son, yet He learned obedience by the things which He suffered. He's really a man. Fully God, fully man. And He learns obedience right here. It's obedience. The obedience of Jesus. Philippians 2.8 says the same thing. He suffered. He, he was obedient even to the point of death. Even the death of a cross in Philippians 2.8. We see it in His words and His prayer over and over again. He comes in. He's not trying to get out of obedience from the beginning. He's saying, not my will, but Your will be done. Not my will, but Your will be done. Not my will, Father, but Your will be done. The obedience of Jesus. I want you to think about it. He says, rise. Verse 42. Rise and let us be going. Going where? Going where? Hebrews 2.14 says, through death, He will destroy the one that has the power of death. That is the devil. Who's the one that has the power of death? The devil. And through his death, through his suffering, taking the wrath of God, he's going to go in and destroy the one that has the power of death. This is much like David rising up. And he's got all the the Israelites behind him, trembling in fear because of Goliath. And he steps up in that moment with all the Philistine armies behind him. And not only does he say, I'm going to cut your head off, but he runs at him. And this is Jesus. Rise. Let us be going. Through death, destroy the one who has the power of death. Despite, don't you think about it. Despite knowing what he could have done. Do you know what Jesus could have done in this moment? And despite knowing his power and his authority and what he could have done, he obeyed anyways. He obeyed. He could have unleashed his own power, the one who raises the dead. He could have unleashed legions of angels. Twelve legions of angels could have come out and destroyed everybody messing with Him in that moment. Listen to Matthew 26, 53. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? He said, I could pray to my Father and He'll give me twelve legions of angels right now. A legion, of, a legion is about 6,000. Do a little math with me. A legion is about 6,000. 12 legions is about 72,000. In 2 Kings, I believe it's chapter 19, we've got an example of one angel obliterating 185,000 men in a moment. What could 72,000 angels do in a moment? 72,000 times 180,000 is 13 billion people. He could have called out 12 legions of angels who in a moment could have destroyed the whole world twice. But He obeys. He steps forward. All that power available to Him and He does not employ it. He goes to the cross in obedience to His Father and in love for us. He goes to the cross. Despite facing the greatest temptation that has ever been experienced on this earth, Christ Jesus obeyed. He obeyed the greatest temptation. I want you to think about it. He had been tempted at the beginning of His ministry. He had been tempted to skip the cross. You remember it? Skip the cross. Hey, look at all these kingdoms. They can be yours now. You don't have to go to the cross. They can be yours right now. And He was tempted with that. And He, and he dominated Satan and his temptations. 
Right in the middle, really at the peak of his ministry, he gets tempted by again, uh, again through through Peter by Satan to skip the cross. Peter says, "You'll never die. You're not going to die." He says, "Get behind me, Satan!" Over and over again, tempted to skip the cross, and you can guarantee that now at the Garden of Gethsemane, he is facing some of the heaviest temptation he has ever faced to skip the cross, sidestep it, never face the wrath of God. But Jesus dominates the tempter. And he steps forward in obedience to his father. He, worked in, he walked in perfect obedience in every single way. And here's a glorious parenthesis. Everybody who has faith in Christ that turns to him in repentance and faith, that obedience, that kind of obedience is put on your record. Despite knowing very clearly, despite knowing very, very clearly the degree to which he would suffer, Jesus obeyed. He knew the degree He would suffer. Get this. Get it. Jesus did not suffer unknowingly. He was not pushed into the fiery furnace. He knew what He would suffer. In Gethsemane, He was placed at the door of the furnace of God's wrath and He got to peer in for just a moment and He saw it all. Jonathan Edwards said it like this, Before Christ was tossed into the furnace of God's wrath for us, He was sat down at the mouth of it so that He could look in and view its fierce and raging flames. Jesus did not ignorantly and involuntarily go to the cross in obedience to God and full of love for us. He entered the furnace of God's wrath knowing full well what He would suffer when He got there. And knowing knowing what He would suffer, think about Him in Gethsemane, knowing what He would suffer in those moments, He says, Father, if there's any other way, and the father was silent. He didn't say anything. Why was the father silent? There, there is no other way. There's no other way for us to be redeemed. God so loved the world that when His Son asked if there's any other way, He was silent. No other way for us to be silent. Jesus knowing that He would suffer, He says to the Father in that moment, He says to the Father, your will be done. And he says to Peter and his disciples, he says, Arise, let us be going. It's time for me to die. Sets his face like flint, goes to the cross. I want you to see God's infinite love for us in these events. Do you see the infinite love of Jesus for you in these events? Do you see it? Knowing that we are wretched haters of God by nature, who would gladly deny Jesus in a moment, knowing that about us, that we would join the crowds and say, crucify Him, and we'd spit in His face, knowing all those things in love, He takes the bitter cup of our wrath and our punishment from the Father's hand, and He drinks it down till there's no wrath left. Oh, the love of Jesus. Love of Jesus for us. Whether you're saved here, right now, whether you're saved or whether you're lost, Hear my final plea. Look to Jesus. What a Savior. What a loving Savior. What a wonderful Savior. What an awesome Savior. Look to this Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can open Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for what You suffered in Gethsemane and at the cross. 
You are alive right now and hear our voice. You said that we pray to You and You hear our, you hear our voice, Lord. And I praise You, God, that You hear us now. And we just say thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord, that You died for us. We, we agree. We are wretched sinners, God. And without You, we can do nothing. We can't even save ourselves. And You came, and I praise You that You came to die for us. Thank You, Lord, that You stepped forward in obedience and took our wrath. Lord, if there's any soul here this morning that does not know You, I pray, God, that You would give light to their souls to see Your love for them and that they would come to You, God, and they'd come and bow down before You and put their hope in You. God, draw them into You even now. Please save souls, Lord. God, if there's anyone here just straddling the fence, God, I pray You help them open their eyes to see Your great glory. Help them to see the vanity of this world. And God, I pray for every single Christian here. Wake us up, oh God. God, please, in, in this time of busyness in this life, and there's so many things in this life that can choke the Word, choke the Word in our lives, I pray, God, that You would wake us up. Make us awake and alive and not sleepy, but alert. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.